Welcome to the Second City Hockey Ice Cold Podcast with your hosts, Adam Hess and Robert Zaglinski. Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode three of season two of the Second City Hockey Ice Cold Podcast. I am your host tonight. My name is Adam Hess. Glad you are listening. Joined, as always, by my co-host, Robert Zaglinski. Robert, how are you doing tonight? Doing well, friend. Doing well. So that's uh, good to hear. Um, so we were blessed on this Sunday to not have to suffer through some Bears football. Did you watch other football? Uh, yeah, because I'm a masochist and I wanted to see what everybody else is enjoying around the league. So, um, yeah. What football did you watch today? Uh, the Falcons and Chargers. I watched uh, the Falcons pull the Chargers and choke the game away, which was pretty entertaining. They went for it on fourth down in their own territory, and it was kind of funny. Nice. I I liked that the Falcons were wearing throwback uniforms today. Those in the Dolphins throwbacks were some good. Those were some good uniforms. I like the Dolphins games because I had the Dolphins running back, and he has back to back two hundred yard games. Even though I'm probably gonna lose in fantasy again, so I hate fantasy football. Dude, my fantasy football team sucks too. Okay, enough football talk. <laughs> I did not watch football today. I haven't watched. Like seriously, I think I watched the the Bears' first drive on Thursday against the Packers. So it was three incomplete passes by Brian Hoyer, none of which I don't think went past the sticks. And they were all just like very bad passes. And I thought, and with the Cubs playing that night, I thought, well, this is just about enough uh, football for me. And I just turned the game off and never went back to it. So you didn't see my large adult son's breakout game? Are no, I did not. Me? I did not see Leonard Floyd have a breakout game. Oh, my God. Dude. Maybe that's why he had a breakout game because I wasn't watching. Okay, just never watch the Bears game then again. Well, no, what, about, what about when we get Miles Garrett? Well, that's my that's my special boy. That's the new that'll be the new table in town. Except he'll be actually be good. You know what I mean? Oh, that's a. <laughs> okay. wow. All right, you're gonna, you're gonna throw shit at Tavo. Let's get into Hawks talk, though. Speaking of Tavo, R.I.P. Um, so the Blackhawks are three and three um, with you know a lot of interesting uneven play. We haven't really seen them. We've seen them play very well in some games and then in the same games play like trash. We've seen them play uh, like trash for whole games. And we've, I don't think we've seen them play well for a, six, a full 60 minutes yet. What's going on with the Blackhawks right now, Robert? What, do you, what have you kind of been taking away from what you've seen so far from them? Um, I think it's a lot of chemistry issues, and the thing about the thing that kind of sucks about it is that they don't really have reinforcements this year as they would have in years past. So they kind of have to make this work. But it's a lot of the new guys, and that not not even necessarily the rookies. Um, that it seems they're struggling to mesh with the veterans. And what you typically expect in maybe the young guys struggling or not, or not getting things together, they've actually played like guys like Tyler Mod and Nick Schmaltz and. Uh, Gustav Forsen, I mean, they've probably played above expectations. It's the veterans that are have been dragging the Blackhawks down in some respects and, and struggling to move with them. And then that's kind of like, well, we'll get to it later, but that's kind of why like the penalty kill in my mind has been just abhorrent through every imaginable fashion. Yeah, I think the, the big key for me, um, the most underperforming of underperformers thus far – on the Blackhawks has got to be Jonathan Taves, who through through five games he had just one even strength point. I did not catch the game last night, so I'm not sure if he had a point last night. I'm checking his. I'm trying to pull up his stats on my phone right now as I'm 
trying to talk about it. But he's so he has two assists this year through six games, which for your captain, for your first line center, for your ten point five million dollar player, as much as sometimes bringing the you know the salary cap aspect of it is kind of a cliche. That two points, you know, he's right now he's playing at a point every third game per pace. So that's going to be what just over twenty five points this year if he continues at this pace that kind of pace is horrible for the Blackhawks they're not going like you can't get that out of your first line center and part of that is that he's playing with players no disrespect meant towards Marion Hosa or Richard Ponick but those guys are just Hosa's no longer a, a top line player Richard Ponick never has been and likely never will be and so he's been being dragged down but at the same time he got like he needs to be able to elevate his game to step up and so this is kind of my call out of Jonathan Taze. Hey, buddy, you know, kick your shit in gear. Here we go. <laughs> no, at what, yeah, exactly. At what point do we draw it back? Because I think like last year, we made a lot of excuses for Taves that he wasn't playing with the best line mates, that he lost Brandon Saad, that Hosa wasn't always with him, or Hosa wasn't up to 100%. But he's supposed to be a superstar player. He's supposed to be one of the best centers in the league. He's certainly no Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby. But at the rate they're paying him, I used to disagree with you. He can't not be producing at the the, the rate he is, um, and it's kind of in the. And then he's also been the kind of the guy that's taking bad penalties too. There's been a lack of discipline. Um, I've seen discussion points sort of brought up that where he's uh, the Nick Lidstrom or he's the guy that he's trying to minimize risk as much as possible, which is true. But at some point, you know, maybe it's maybe it's time to put yourself out there more when they need more offensive output. Yeah. I mean, I look at it with just kind of from Tay's perspective and I know I didn't necessarily mean for this to turn into like a, a, a Tay's rag. No, this on is good. This is good. We're, no, we but have it's, to it's good because he's a player that needs to be stepping up. He has Jonathan Tay's has less goals than Ryan Hartman and as many points as Ryan Hartman, less goals than Marcus Kruger and as many points as Marcus Kruger. Like these are players, these are fourth line players for the Blackhawks that are producing at the same rate as Jonathan Taze and have directly put the puck into the net. Each of them only have one goal, but that is more goals than Jonathan Taze has through six games. And that's a big issue. And again, we know, like, like you said, we kind of created excuses last year, uh, like the sod and the talent, what was going on, the, 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 the rotating, you know, carousel of left first line left wings that he had. But at the same time, his shooting percentage did go low, like, you know, it was a career low. So it was like, hey, you know, there is actually something to this. There, It's not just like uh, he's lost a step. But this year, I don't see any excuses for that. His shooting percentage is still zero. His He has two points. Again, he's on a 25-point pace, barely more than 25 points. That's, that's a nightmare when you're paying him $10.5 million. And he's the kind of guy that needs to step up and really kick his shit into gear. And he's not generating many shots either. He only has 15 shots on the year through six games. I mean, what, two and a half shots a game from your first-line center? You're, you're not going to score much at all. I, I, so frankly, I don't know how the Blackhawks have won three games with him producing like this. I, I mean, maybe it is the, maybe the depth scoring is better than we thought. Um, but it's also other guys. It's guys like Nicholas it's, – it's guys like uh, Nicholas Jomerson that maybe have been – have a little dropped off a little bit. Hosa, who – I'm sure you want to talk about has really fell off, uh, fallen off a cliff. I'm not sure if it's his injury for, against the Philadelphia the other week. Um, all these guys just aren't 
the people we didn't think we'd have to worry about are the people that are dragging this team down. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't know if I want to say dragging the team down. Well, not, not, not drastic, dragging yeah. the team down is is not necessarily accurate, but they're not elevating their play. And maybe you can look at it as a Hawks fan and say, okay, this is not going to continue. Like, you, like in all likelihood, Jonathan Taze is not going to continue to play at a twenty-five point pace all season. He's he's at least a fifty-point player, which even that is not good enough based on what he's getting paid. But even if he gets 50 points, you can kind of look at it as, okay, you know, that's a little bit of a down year. But he's, he's probably going to end up probably somewhere in the 60s, which is good. But at this point in time, he's not there yet. And so maybe you look at it and say, okay, he's going to step up, get to that higher pace, and, you know, that's going to help elevate the Blackhawks. But, and that's, you know, that's kind of a positive outlook, but it's – Again, like you said, it's the shot generation. It's not. It's not getting a lot of shots on goal. It's. It's what you know. What share of the shot attempts are you like holding? You know how. What. What. What possession rate are you at when you're on the ice? And I'm not looking directly at it, but I know that it's not great. Um, just based on what I've heard about it. Um, so I don't have a number to throw out, but I don't think. I'll look that up while you speak. I'll look that up. Sure. Yeah. So it's. It's a lot of. You know. It's these guys that have historically carried the Blackhawks that aren't at the level they need to be at and that's a big issue for them and that's going to have to be that's going to have to like step up and change you mentioned Marion Hossa last night Marion Hossa was a my I think it was minus nine at even strength and shot differential and it was a minus three for goal differential which minus three is not you know plus minus is not necessarily an indicative stat but like Marion Hossa defensive stalwart like you know one of the best two-way players to ever play the game Last night against the Maple Leafs, who, to their credit, are a young and fast team, and Hosa is not a young and fast player anymore. But he's on the ice for three goals against. That's the kind of stuff that cannot be happening. Um, actually, this is kind of the stuff for the advanced stats. Maybe it might be misleading. Maybe, maybe it's a small sample size. But Taves has a 59.7% Corsi percentage through six games and a Corsi relative of 12.5. Are you looking at, so he's, are you looking at 5v5, though, or all situations? I am looking at all situations. Oh, try to go to 5v5. Okay. I mean, it's still pretty good. Because he does I, play I on the power play. Well, yeah, that's obvious, but um, I know I'm just saying that that, 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 that's, that, that, that really jumped out at me. Uh, sure. I don't know how to – I don't know how to – whatever. I don't know how to um, – It's fine. I'm just, I mean, even if it's, if it's not, you know, the possession game, even if that aspect of it has, is not as bad as – um, I was kind of assuming and thought and was, you know, interpreting from what I've been hearing. Mm-hmm. It's the, the production has to be there. And maybe that will follow if they're continuing to produce, you know, shot attempts and controlling the play. And it should, you know, in all likelihood, that's why we, that is why we study analytics is because we know if, you know, if Jonathan Taze is controlling 59% of the shots on goal when he's on the ice and, you know, he's not producing, that's going to change. He's going to start producing. That's what the stats tell us. But, it needs to happen soon because right now, like to be there, just to be blunt about it, kind of like we talked about with Mike Fail last week, the Blackhawks are not a playoff team based on the way they've been playing right now. Like they're they're bound for the draft lottery at this rate, and they're a literal one line team again. I mean, it's all. I mean, Kane's on a more than point per game pace. I'm pretty sure I'm looking at Panarin right now. Um, I think he's also on more than a point game per pace, and Isimov is really the guy that's facilitating. They only have one consistent scoring line, which isn't going to get you anywhere, which is what puts them on the pace for the lottery. 
Um, and I'm looking at Panarin. Panarin has five points, so he's just under a point per game pace. So he's like what for 65 or 70 points. Same difference. Um, I mean, they they're having the same problems as our last year. I think the one saving grace they have right now is their defense. But even their defense isn't playing as well as you'd think. Even though there are, um, even though there are some th- uh, bright spots that people have looked at, like Sam Fells from TCI and uh, Fifth Feather and otherwise, where. Their overall skill should eventually push the Blackhawks towards a higher level, but it's not there yet. Right, and, and I I think that the Blackhawks they're too good of a team in terms of their like their high end talent to not be a playoff team. But at the same time, that's the kind of stuff that we said about you know the 2014 Los Angeles Kings or 2015 Los Angeles Kings, and they missed the playoffs. <laughs> like the you know the Los Angeles Kings missed out on the playoffs in the 2015 season, and. That was a shock to a lot of people, but because it was, you know, they have high end talent and the Hawks are at a point right now where if they can't, if, you know, if they end up running into injury issues, if Jonathan Taze or if Patrick Kane or Artem Anisimov or Artemi Panarin, if one of those big hosses goes down for them and for a hundred period of time, they're going to be in a lot of trouble because they're relying too much, especially on that second line. Like you just noted, they're relying too much on that line to produce. The, and, you know, luckily they've had guys like Tyler Mott has been impressive in the bottom, in, you know, in that bottom six. He's got four points through six games. That's good for an NHL rookie. Like, he's, he's looked good. But there has to be the step up because, if again, if they lose one of those, you know, their big players, their key names, they could be in for, if they, you know, if, if Jonathan Tays, or sorry, if Patrick Kane breaks his collarbone again and has to miss two months of the season, that's going to be two months that you're without your top scorer and you're going to have to try to overcompensate for that. You don't have, you know, you don't have a Tavo Teravainen to call up anymore. You don't have, you know, Nick Schmaltz. There's no one. Nick Schmaltz is already on the roster. You don't have elite talent to bring up and try to fill that role. So you need these players to, to kind of hit their stride because if they end up in injury form, or if they, I'm sorry, if they, if they end up in injury form, if they get injured, they're not a team that's going to be able to compete well to make the playoffs, in my opinion. Uh, right now, uh, just from a being technical standpoint, they, I think they're the f- first wild card in the West, but still point is point again taken. Um, I think that Kane's comparison is uh, a little drastic considering the K based off what we expected because this team with a first round loss, uh, at least what we wanted, they would have four or five months rest. It hasn't shown up yet. The Canes, I think that team was running a little on fumes and they didn't have the same uh, – necessary defensive depth that the Blackhawks do right now, or at least theoretically do uh, still agree with all that. I just wanted, I just wanted to, I just wanted to make that note that point. Um, but yeah, let's talk about that blue line. Uh, they haven't been the best. They haven't been the worst, but there's, there's clearly a lot of skill level here. Like I noted, um, but like, like I know, mentioned that Sam Fells noted and fifth feather noted uh, what has impressed you or what do you think needs to be improved? I think, a lot of their struggles has played into the power play being, again, generally good, and the PK sort of on that historically bad pace. What stands out to you? I think what stands out to me the most immediately, and maybe just because I um, have been looking for a new special boy after Tavo Teravainen left, is Gustav Forsling looks very comfortable at the NHL level. He doesn't look like he's really needing to adjust he is, you know, he doesn't look uncomfortable. He's, he's playing well. He looks confident, making good passes, 
playing well defensively, position-wise, and his defensive zone looks fine. So I think that, you know, his play has been impressive to me. And it kind of sticks out, most, and again, mostly because I've been kind of watching him more. When, mm-hmm. when he's on the ice, I pay a lot more attention to what he's doing. Um, so, but overall, I think the Blackhawks' blue line this year has looked better than it did last year. And um, as much as it is unfortunate for Trevor Van Riemsdyk to be injured, you never hope to see a player injured and forced to miss a period of time. I think in a lot of ways that injury and him not being able to be on the ice is going to end up being a net positive for the Blackhawks because he just when he's on the ice, there's a lot of struggles that go on. And again, he's a useful enough bottom six player, but it seems like Joel Quinville just wants to kind of stretch him a little too thin, um, try to you know overuse him in situations he's not comfortable in, in roles he's not great for. And because of that, it doesn't work out. And so I think that not having him as an option and kind of, going more towards the, you know, what you know with Brian Campbell and Gustav Forsling and Duncan Keith and Nicholas Chalmers and Brent Seabrook and then Michael Kempney, who's looked good. Like, that defensive core um, is going, you know, going forward, as long as they don't get injured, that's a pretty good core for the Blackhawks to build upon. And, you know, there's good puck movement there. There's good defensive responsibility. So I think that they can be in a good spot. The thing that that sticks out to me the most, and especially once all these other people have mentioned it, it's, it's how well all these guys are able to maintain possession and maintain pucks in for forwards. It's just that, you know, we don't really have the high end forwards or, or depth on forwards that can, with guys that can finish these plays and turn them into goals and turn them into. Um, I mean, Brian Campbell, uh, Michael Kempner, Gustav Fors, and everybody, and then, and then your set three of John Merson, Keith, and Seabrook, they all excel at keeping the puck in and pressuring. It's just that the forwards are the ones that more often than not lose the possession. I think once someone gets – especially Brian Campbell, who I think people maybe underestimated a little bit how much he would bring considering his age. But through six games, he looks pretty good. And through six games – uh, when you play him with a good partner like Keith, or even play him on his comfortable left side, he looks like one of the best possession drivers in the league, and just a fantastically smooth skater. This team will look demonstratively better if two or three forwards can pick their play up, considering how the blue line has looked. Now, far as the op- as far as the opposite side, Michael Kepner is kind of – he looks kind of a little shaky to me lately, and I, and I was curious to see what you thought of that. Um, again, I haven't really been able to watch the Blackhawks recently. I missed – I did miss last night's game, um, and I did not catch Friday's game either, so I maybe have missed kind of the shakiness. But from what I've seen of him, I've, I've liked what he's brought to the table. Um, so I can't necessarily speak to the shakiness. But overall, like you said, I think that the Blackhawks' blue line is just – has been as much improved from last year. They're not going to have the same issues there. And like you said, the key is going to be, can they turn, you know, the, the good forward or sorry, the good defensive core driving play into the, the forwards creating chances and creating goals. And so far that hasn't happened. And that's going to be key. If they can do that, that'll be key for the Hawks to have success this year. And I think people discount that too. That's sort of how all the Blackhawks teams were built, where the defensemen are very active in the offensive zone. They're the ones pinching in. They're the ones creating the play. They're the the Blackhawks rely much more on their offense or, or on their defensemen to create offensive possession or create offensive plays. Again, they didn't have that last year, and hopefully this starts to come more to fruition. 
Um, let's talk about that PK though. Uh, you did, you've you've been doing a nice little project on that, Adam. Um, they've allowed what at least one power play goal every game. They've allowed twelve power play goals through six games. Uh, they're on a historically awful pace. Currently at forty two point nine percent. Easily thirtieth in the league. He's the last place in the league. Adam, what have you seen there, man? Well, I don't want to give away too much of the article that I'm writing, which I guess people will not hear this podcast until probably after it um, comes out. So I guess maybe I can kind of go into a little more detail. But to me, the main thing I'm seeing from the Blackhawks, um, and I mean, I went, I've gone through, I went through and watched every single power play goal that they gave up, and not just like the goal itself. But I watched the entire penalty kill from the faceoff to start it all the way through the goal. And then I also actually watched some successful ones and to try to see if those same issues were still present and if they were just kind of getting lucky. And what I'm seeing is that the Blackhawks are doing a, a, I would say, good job of pressuring the puck when it's down low or along the boards. Kind of if it's at the faceoff dots or lower, they're, they're doing a good job of getting after the puck carriers taking away passing lanes kind of making them make a play but they're they're like they're not defending the point and when I say not defending the point I don't mean not defending the point well enough I don't mean not defending the point and like often I don't mean sometimes don't defend the point I mean they do not defend the point (laughs) like full stop they let pucks go to the point they don't stop a they, they leave those passing lanes open for teams to take advantage of. Then once the puck's at the point, they don't pressure the, the point player at all. Um, I was, like, looking at um, against the St. Louis Blues, actually, which is the, the very first game, they, the Blues had a, a power play where they score with, like, 10 seconds left on the power play. And I would say they had the puck in the offensive zone for a full minute of that power play, maybe more, and – 60% of that was the puck being at the point and the, the, just passing it back and forth, make, moving the Hawks around, trying to, like, get it up. At one point, Colton Pareko, who has a huge shot, was had the puck and was just left all alone. And then he took a shot. It didn't go in, but then they had a ton of time again. Petrangelo has the puck all alone, passes to, to Tarasenko across the ice, at uh, you know, on the point all alone, passes back. They rotate a little bit. Petrangelo throws it to Kevin Shattenkirk all alone at the point. No one, no one's trying to take away those lanes. No one's trying to defend these players. And Shattenkirk bangs home a one-timer. And it's like, like I, I, this was the first penalty kill that I watched doing this project. And I thought, I think I know exactly what's going to be the whole, the problem for the rest of this because I, like, it was such an, it was so evident in that one that that was what I was just like, I was like, let's see if it's, if it's in the next one. And it, it was there every single time. And like they just they are they're letting teams have the point, and it's just it's honestly it's like incredible that they haven't figured out that like hey all of these goals are being scored because of a point shot like it's either point shots going in or point shots being redirected or point shots that generate a rebound like or point passes that then like because you don't contest the pass they it allows them to make a play like last night against Toronto. I watched the William Nylander goal, and I don't know who it was that started the play, but he had a wide-open pass across the point to Austin Matthews, who then had a wide-open pass back through the ice to William Nylander. No one is defending the point. They're not trying to take away the, – they're not – they're letting people make plays. They're not forcing them to make plays, and they just need to be a little bit more aggressive. 
Um, and that's kind of what I've taken away from watching all these and analyzing all these power plays um, or penalty kills in the Blackhawks sense is that there's no aggression. There's so much passivity because they, they don't want what – they're, what they're afraid of doing is, I think, taking away slate lines from Corey Crawford. And so they don't want to break out of this box. Mike Darnay talk, uh, did just did a post over the weekend um, for, for SB Nation about how they stay in the box so much. They're afraid to kind of leave that box. And because they don't leave the box, they're letting the point stay wide open. Well, you have guys like Kevin Shattenkirk, like Alex Petrangelo, like P.K. Subban, like Zach Wierenski, like Shane Gossisbear, who are all elite talents and uh, like elite blue liners in the NHL and have great shots. And you're letting them you know, just do whatever they want at the point. You're letting them have pass lanes. You're letting them have shooting lanes. You're not challenging them, not forcing them to make a play. And that's bad news for your penalty kill every single time. See, that, that, and that's exactly where I think that inexperience plays in because allowing those sight lines, that's something the Blackhawks have always done in the Cornival era. They want Croy Crawford to have as best vision of as possible of every shot when killing a penalty. They, they, they don't want to screen him unnecessarily. They want to maintain that box. But as you noted, they're not – like previously when they would be successful because all of the previous three cup teams had great PKs, at least in the playoffs they did. They've, they've, never, won a pen, they've never won a Stanley Cup when they were not a top-10 penalty killer. Exactly. And any time that they weren't a top-10 penalty killer, they have not won the Stanley Cup, which and is they, just fascinating stat to me. Well, it's important. I, I think to me – um, I'd rather have a great PK than a power play because especially with the Blackhawks who have a lot of these high-end scorers, they can break through at any time. Having a great power play uh, isn't as important as just being disciplined enough to make up for someone's uh, high stick or make someone so, make up for someone's hooking. Um, and as you noted, the box, like, I th- again, I think it's the inexperience that, that, that they're not comfortable enough to flex it out if they need be to break the point and everybody cover for each other. I think everybody has that passiveness because they're not – they don't have that necess- – and this is maybe just me speaking to cliches, but they don't have that necessary trust to make up for each other yet because there is there is a lot of new guys playing with that. You have three new defensemen. You have four new for- – no, three new forwards. I mean – Sure, I, I, I see that point. But the people killing penalties are not that much different than the people who have killed penalties in the past. It's still Jonathan Taze and Marian Hossa and Artem Anisimov and Marcus Kruger and Duncan Keith and Brent Seabrook and Nicholas Chalmerson. Like, I mean, really, the Hawks rotate those three. One of those three defensemen, you know, the, their big three defensemen, Seabrook, Keith, or Chalmerson, are always on the ice on the penalty kill. And sometimes with, you know, it might be Michael Kempney, a couple of times it's been TVR. Sometimes it's been Forsling. Like, but one of those three is always there. And then Taze and Hosa are still a power play duo, a penalty killing duo. Really, the only new forward that's been killing penalties is Tyler Mott. And in my opinion, watching them, he's the the one player that I go, hey, he's actually kind of doing a little bit. Like he's he's kind of pressuring the point. Like he's at least getting closer and kind of like making like he's just like I don't want to say forcing a play because he's not. But he's like, okay, he kind of looks like he's trying – like he thinks that he's making them make a play, I guess, is what, I, like what I'm trying to say is like he, he's the one that just looks the best of all the penalty killers, in my opinion, even better than Jonathan Taze at this point. Um, but, again, they're just they're, – they're not 
they're not aggressive like at all on the penalty kill. And I don't mean just like taking away the, the point either. Like um, natural stat trick Satchel pointed this out to me, our uh, fearless leader pointed out to me that um, they are the only team in the NHL that does not have a shot on goal shorthanded this year through six games. They're being outshot 54 to zero on the penalty kill. You break that down per nine games. That's nine extra shots on goal that you're getting, that you're letting that team have against you. So nine more opportunities that your opponent has than you do to score a goal. That's, that's horrible. Even it. And again, on a penalty kill, like your goal is not to score goals. Your goal is to kill the penalty and not let the other team score a goal. But the Blackhawks last year were the third were tied for third with 10 shorthanded goals. This year they don't even have a shot on ten, a shot on the net when shorthanded. So where's like it's the same coaching staff for the most part it's the same players. Where's that aggressiveness? Where where is that gone? Where is that mindset gone? And I think you know Jonathan Tay said it's 100% mental. It's all like it is a mental thing because and I think part of it is because you know they gave up three power play goals to the St. Louis Blues in the home opener. That's like that's a tough start. So now like you're already behind the eight ball because I think they were three for four that night. So you're already at you know a twenty five percent pace, which is like obviously horrible. But it's again it's one game, so like you can still kind of bounce back. But again, like it kind of plants a seed of doubt of like holy crap, like we let. We, we gave them three power play goals. Now, one of them was a five-on-three goal by Vladimir Tarasenko, so you can't really be that mad about it. But who? Three, what? <laughs> Shut up. They let three power play <laughs> goals in against the Blues. So then that kind of like lets that seed of doubt creep into your head where it's like, hey, can we actually kill penalties? <laughs> like, you know, like it, you're, you're starting from an, an uncomfortable position, and then when you go to and play the Nashville Predators – and you, you know, have a penalty kill early in the game, and P.K. Subban, you know, you leave him all at the point, and he winds up and scores, it's like, oh, God, here we go again. Like, because the first goal the Predators scored five minutes into the game, was, even though it tied again because the Hawks already had a lead, was a power play goal. So I think it is mental for the Hawks, but they have to get that back in their heads, and they have to, they have to make the strategic change to say, we're going to start pressuring these players at the point. We're going to start taking the point away because we don't want to be like we want to make them make a play we don't want to let them make a play and I think that that again that's I don't think that's going to solve their issues but that's going to be a step in the right direction because right now like you said they're at 42.9 percent which means that right now if they take a penalty they are more likely to give up a goal than to kill off the penalty and you're like you you're not going to win the Stanley Cup. You're not even going to make the playoffs if you give up a goal more than half the time you take a penalty. And if you and then even if you improve that, even if you like I want I don't want to say double because that's like doubling you'd be a good power a good penalty kill. But say you, you know, become, you know, 150% or not, sorry. Say you become 50% better. So now you're a 60% penalty kill team. Well, you're still looking at only killing off six out of every 10 penalty kills or three out of every five. So that means every five times that you are shorthanded, you're giving up two goals. That's not good. <laughs> you can't like, cause you're going to take, you're, you're probably going to be taking three to four penalties in a game. And that's just how the game is. Like it's very rare, the game that is played without penalties. So you really need to start. And not like the, the key isn't take less penalties. 
the key is, you know, we need to start making the steps to give up less goals. <laughs> yeah, and it's in, I like that mental point grade too because it's the kind uh, a power play or a penalty kill is is it's it is very mental. I, I feel like ideally, again, ideally. Once they get into a rhythm, once they kill off a few straight, that's when you gain confidence, and that's when you can go on one of those 16 for 18 runs or 16 for for 19 runs or whatever or however many straight, and you can correct that. But the funny thing is, even if they say were to go 20 and 20 over the next few games, over the next few two weeks, they'd, that still would barely have them break even, or that still would have them at just – an average penalty kill based off of these first six games. Um, I mean, I guess we'll just see how it develops over. Right. And I, I mean, it's obvious that they're not going to stay a 43% penalty killing team like that. It's, I don't even know what the record low in NHL history is, but I guarantee you it's probably in like the low seventies. Like they're going to start killing off a lot more penalties. Like that is just like, that's going to happen naturally. But at the same time, we, I don't want to like, that, like at this point, they almost have to kill off like ninety percent of their penalties over the next couple of games to even get themselves to being like an eighty point percent penalty killing team. Like they're so far behind the eight ball that it's not that, that they're just going to be. I don't know. It's 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 weird to put in. Like they're so far behind the eight ball that they are going to be having to, like they're going to have to pick up the pace big time <laughs> to yeah, become yeah. a respectable penalty killing team. It's the kind of aspect for me that I want to wait a little longer. I want to wait another month or so or a month and a half or so before I definitively take a judgment of this team and in all facets. But right now through six games, I mean, it doesn't look good. Yeah. Uh, so let's move on a little bit from the penalty kill here. Let's talk about Trevor Van Riemsdyk. Who what, do we have to? I know. I know. I mentioned before, though, um, injured uh, against Columbus, right? That's what it was mm-hmm. against. He went yeah. into the post. He slid into the post. He was fighting yeah. with uh, and it was, Maligno. And let's just talk – so we can kind of – I want to – we can talk about it in a second. But so, – so injured. Previously before that was being talked about Elliot Friedman this week referenced that um, he Trevor Van Riemsdyk might be trade bait on the Blackhawks' end as they try to at, uh, attain some forward depth. So the Blackhawks had not really been playing him until that point. Then that game, I don't want to call it a showcase, but they, they let him in the into the roster in, or into the lineup because it doesn't look good if you're trying to trade players you don't that you don't even want to play. And then he gets hurt. So now, what kind of trade value does he have? Is it completely gone, or is he still movable? And even if he is movable, what kind of player are they even going to get in return? Well, I mean, clearly, as Elliot Freeman noted, they're looking for like you said, they're looking for a forward. They're looking for a depth scoring forward. Um, but someone's going to want to salvage him. Uh, for the Blackhawks, especially at the present moment, he doesn't have any value. Considering the first six guys they have on their blue line, we, met, we noted, those are all very skilled guys that can move the puck, that are disciplined in their own zone, that are composed in their own zone to the opposite of TVR. TVR's greatest strengths and have always been, he has some relatively decent offensive instincts, um, I guess, uh, but the, but he's he looks like Bambi. He looks like Bambi sometimes in his own zone, trying to make a simple pass, or he's he's caught staring. He's caught flat footed on on um, what is it, two on ones, three on ones, whatever. And it doesn't look good for him. 
as far as his trade value, and as far as his trade value, I mean, you really you're really looking for a bad team, I guess. You're looking for Toronto. You're looking for Ottawa. You're looking to salvage something and getting really anything that returned this point because, I mean, it, it's clear even the Blackhawks are losing belief, at least to me. Yeah, I think that you know his place in this organization is dwindling. Um, they've you know, the the fact that they've consist- consistently brought in talent um, that has been better than him is obviously disappointing. Um, you know, bringing in, I mean, obviously bringing in a guy like Brian Campbell, who, like there's no, it's no secret that Campbell's a better player than Trevor Van Riemsdyk. But then you bring in a guy like Michael Kempney, who throughout the preseason and throughout early this year has just looked like he's comfortable in the NHL game and has looked better than Trevor Van Riemsdyk. And then Gustav Forsling, who is so young, but is, su- like, is such a special talent. He's already um, better than TVR. Let's right, be honest. Absolutely. No, abs- absolutely. He's, and that's discouraging because it's like, you know, he's so young that he's already better than you. Like, you're, you're – Trevor Van Riemsdyk is 26 – is I think 26 years old or 25. He's not getting – like, he's not going to be getting significantly better – Gustav Forsling it still has room He's to get significantly. He he has room to get significantly better in the next year or two. Trevor Van Riemsdyk like does not. He is what he is at this point, and so it's discouraging. And I think even Billy Poca, who as much as he has kind of been disappointing and it hasn't necessarily worked out since being traded, um, and you know since being acquired in the Nick Letty deal, even he looks like a player with a better future in this team than Trevor Van Riemsdyk. Like. So being injured. Um, is obviously a huge blow for him in terms of his place on this team. I did have the, the Maple Leafs uh, people from Pension Plan Puppets were asking me what it would take to pry away Van Riemsdyk. And I couldn't give an honest answer. Like, I mean, ideally, like I said earlier, the Blackhawks would want a death scoring forward, but is he even worth that? I mean, I'm asking that to you. Is he even worth anything more than a third or fourth round pick. I, I can't confidently say that because he's not very good. He's he's kind of stagnant and he doesn't move his feet. He does he has no discernible skills. A lot of other Hawks bloggers have made fun of him for over a year and we fought that. I fought that particularly, but I can't anymore. He's just bad. Yeah, I think uh it's hard really to value to judge anymore what players are worth in the NHL Um, and not even necessarily because like a huge part of it is because NHL GMs make a lot of really stupid trades. I mean, we're like, I mean, if Peter Chiarelli wants to give us McDavid for TBR, like when you're looking at teams trading Taylor Hall, elite talent, like Trader (laughs) Hall, like Taylor Hall, Trader Hall. Wow. Taylor Hall. Trader Hall. Hall. That's a good one. If you're Edmonton fan, make sure you credit me. Oilers fans listening. (laughs) But if so, if you're looking at teams trading elite talent like Taylor Hall for you know okay players like Adam Larson, <laughs> like he's and a good defenseman, but he's not Taylor Hall. Right, he's okay, but he's not elite. And Taylor Hall is an elite forward. So you make a play like that, like or a trade like that. It's just it's so weird. And I think if you're Edmonton, like as stupid as of a trade as that is, like you look at it like they need defense. So maybe Edmonton's a team that is like, okay, you know what? We really need defense. Let's give up a player. I don't. I can't even think of anybody. I think the perfect player to trade Trevor Van Riemsdyk for would have been Neil Yakupov. Um, but then in that case, I think, and I don't honestly, I think you know, as much as those talks, you know, we have heard that happened. Um, I I'm sure 
that – I mean, I, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but if I was Stan Bowman and that was what the Oilers were asking for, I would have had no problem giving them Trevor Van Reems like Fernando Yakupov. But at the same time, I'm sure the issue in that was the the salary. So I think that that could have been a, a pretty fair trade in terms of Van Reems like for Yakupov. So I think kind of like a Yakupov type, like a younger player with some skill um, who – has been underperforming or like a scoring kind of forward. Like I think of a guy, um, I don't think this is a trade that will happen, but a guy like PA Parento, um, like players of that kind of fold where they haven't really been fine. Like they're consistently signing one year deals. No, like they're just kind of becoming journeyman players. Like, yeah, we'll use you here for a year. And then you go sign with this team for a year. Someone like that teams that need defensemen or that are willing to just kind of say, okay, you know, we have we have PA Parento or similar player give us, you know, warm body and decent draft pick. So the Hawks go, okay, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, fifth round draft pick, here you go. And we'll take your, you know, journeyman scoring forward who's useful enough. Um, so I think that that's the kind of player that it's going to take to get Van – or that Van Riemsdyk can get. Um, I, it's But, again, it's just so hard to judge trade talent, especially because – as much as we as fans look at Turbin Reams like and are frustrated and see the flaws, like, you know, there's so many – it's hard to know what GMs value. And especially cert, like certain GMs are going to value other things more than the other GMs. You know, like Stan Bowman might value a player's offensive ability from, on the blue line, whereas like, you know, Dean Lombardi or Jim Benning, who's probably a better example of a bad GM, might just go, is he a leader? Or is he gritty? Like shit, like that, like <laughs> stuff like like. You or is, know, he, just, is he a stay-at-home defenseman, which is trash? But right. same thing with yeah. Chris. Is he a Chris Russell type? He's what does he bring to our locker room? Sure. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just it's about it's just going to depend on what a, you know the team acquiring Van Reems like values, what they view him as being worth, what the Blackhawks view him as being worth, and what they ask for in return. I'm sure they're not going to be asking for first round pick or you know obviously not like a Connor McDavid or even a player like Taylor Hall or even like I don't even think they would be asking for a player like David Perron from the Blues it's just like that kind of that for some reason that's the name that came to my head not that the Blues would be interested in Van Riemsdyk or that that would be a realistic player but I don't even think like you know a household kind of name third line player is really going to get Trevor Van Riemsdyk it's going to have to be a player who's kind of a journeyman like I kind of mentioned with P.A. Parento a player of that kind of fold and if for some reason they don't trade him, I think it's. I think we can both agree that uh, his time in Chicago is numbered. If he's not traded by the deadline in February, uh, then he's probably going to be up for grabs uh, in the expansion draft for the Vegas team. I mean, it's pretty safe to say TVR. Um, maybe he joins his brother in Toronto through a trade or not, or wherever else. But he, it, what if he's traded for his brother? Dude, JVR, are you kidding me? JVR on this team—that's exactly what we would need. Don't even say that. Now I'm now I'm hyperventilating. That would be the the Leafs would be stupid to make that trade, but that'd be the Leafs would be that'd be some Twilight Zone shit, dude. Like, how often have brothers been traded for each other in the NHL? Has that ever happened? That'd be pretty cool. That could be a thirty for thirty on that. That'd be like trading like Peyton Manning for Eli Manning. I mean. I don't even know. Whatever. And that's actually I not that Trevor Van, or not that James Van Reems like is the Peyton Manning of hockey, but the skill level there. Actually, Eli Manning is way better of a player than TVR is. Yeah, but 
but it, it's still comparable in terms it, it's of it's a comparable thing and how, trading, how like, different they tra- are. Trading the elite brother, or I guess JVR know. is a sixty-point player that yeah. can score twenty-five to thirty goals. I mean, JVR is a player. very good player. So trading like the the high-end brother for the you know brother who's okay but not great for the gainly <laughs> lakey guy. Yeah, it's <laughs> let's anyway. Moving along, let's, let's talk, talk about let's talk about Richard Ponick, who um, I was so this was fun. I was looking at doing doing the penalty kill piece today, finalizing that. I was I went on the NHL.com stats page. And whose bright, shiny face lights up as the leader of goals in the NHL, your National Hockey League NHL leading goal scorer is Dick Panic. Dick Panic. Sorry, Dick Panic, yes. So we, you know, six goals this year on nine shots, which is just a very nice conversion rate. It's a very nice conversion rate. Um, He's been playing pretty well. I don't think there's any denying that. But he's obviously getting pretty lucky. Um, I six, mean, go- six goals on nine shots uh, is not a pace that he will continue at. So, what kind, like, what can we realistically expect from him moving forward throughout the year? Well, yeah, obviously he's not. Yeah, like you say, he's not going to shoot sixty-six percent on the year. He's not going to shoot six of nine. Nice um, on the year. A lot of his goals have been where. Just conveniently, the puck bounces off of his stick, or he's there for cleanup duty, which maybe speaks to effort or whatever cliche crap you want there. Um, to finish his hat trick against Nashville, he had last week. Kane just passed it off to him, even though Kane could have probably scored himself. Um, realistically, we can get 20 goals from him. We can get 45 or 50 points from him up there playing with Taves and Hosa or Taves and Mott. Uh, I mean, I'd be pretty satisfied. We're going to see a uh, very quick, no, a very dramatic drop-off very soon. But once he gets onto that kind of pace, 45 to 50 points, I think I'm I'm satisfied. I think that's the kind of player he is. Um, he's a very good two-way player. He's not Brandon Saad. He's not going to confuse anyone for, with Brandon Saad, but he's responsible on his own end. He has a lot of speed. He has okay hands. And um, once the luck kind of drops out, I mean, I guess more or less that's that's where we're headed. That's what we're headed for. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think at the at this point in the season, with him already having um, six, you know, six goals, I don't think twenty points is necessarily an unrealistic benchmark for him um, for this season. But I think twenty points or twenty goals. Twenty goals. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think twenty goals is necessarily unrealistic. I think in general. He's kind of a, a 10 to 14, 10 to 15 goal player. Um, you know, what, that's what you expect from him, I think, is going into this year, I think we could have said, yeah, somewhere between 10 and 15 goals would be a pretty good amount for Richard Panic. And playing on the top line, top line minutes um, with Jonathan Taze, getting that, um, you know, having that kind of skill level, maybe elevating him to between 15 and 20. The fact that he has six through six games, I think, makes 20 much more realistic for the year. Um, obviously he's not going to score 82. <laughs> um, he's not going to He's on pace this. for 82 goals. Right. He's not going to, he's not going to stay on a, a goal per point per game pace. Um, we'll see. we'll see. I mean, I'd be happy. I'd be fine if he does, but <laughs> I think 20, 20 is not unrealistic. 20. I mean, even 25 could be within reach. I don't want to get, I don't want to push it too much, but I think saying 45 to 50 points might be pushing it a little bit. I think realistically he looks like a 35 to 40 point player. Um, cause I don't know. I mean, I'm not like, 
again, if Jonathan Tate can kind of step up and get into like a 55 to 60 point level himself, which he's certainly capable of, then I'm sure Panic can play into that a lot if they're going to spend time together. And so Panic can kind of rack up the assists and finish off a lot of those of Tate's assists, um, you know, get and rack up the goals. But I don't know if that's necessarily a point total that's realistic for him. Yeah, and that's kind of what Taves has normally averaged through his career, 55 to 65. So maybe that might elevate him. The Hawks are already stretching panic. I think panic is more of the guy that normally if the Hawks have more uh, top-end talent than they do, that he would probably be more making more appearances on the third line. So, but they're, so they're kind of asking him a lot more than he's already done. And in that respect, it's pleasing. It's, I mean, it's nice to see a guy making the most of his opportunity, at least for now. He's, I mean, he's clearly less talented. He's clearly less of a high-end guy. But he is excelling under more extraneous circumstances than one would expect from a player of his skill level. You know, it's at least heartening to see. It's a good story. I mean, it's one of the better – it's probably the better story of the Hawks season at the moment. Yeah, I think – I don't – my issue is – I don't know how much longer I really want to see him playing with Jonathan Taves. Um, I'm well. If you wouldn't have him with Taves, I mean, you don't have many options. That's kind of I'm, the thing. I'm starting to get of the mind that the Blackhawks need to break up the second line of Anisimov and Panarin and Kane, and and not just like oh, move Artem Artemi Panarin to the first line. Like I honestly think that those three players need to be on three different lines, um, and. I don't. Maybe this is a little too radical, but I would really like to see like Panarin, Taze, Hosa as the first line, and then um, Panic, Nick Schmaltz, and Patrick Kane as the second line because I think Schmaltz's offensive ability would complement Patrick Kane um, well enough for that to be a good offensive line, and Panic, um, you know, with his ability to finish plays off, um, kind of be you know the hard noser on the net can be beneficial, and then I think sliding Anisimov to the third line which obviously he's not a third-line player, um, but because you can maybe try to stretch Nick Schmaltz's offensive style and let him be a second-line player, you can kind of you know, benefit yourself by sliding Anisimov to that third line. That can benefit the depth as well. So I think that if the Hawks can kind of do that, I don't know if you think that's too unrealistic or a little too um, radical, but I think that's a good way for them to kind of spread that depth out as well is take that one scoring line and kind of, spread it out among three lines and see if that can generate some offense throughout the whole lineup. I think that if that, that's a kind of change that I'd be welcome to see. And if it didn't work out, I don't think that you're worse for the wear for at least trying something there. No, I like that. And I was actually going to mention that too. Um, I understand the people that think Kane and Panarin have this special chemistry together, which they do. They blaze the ice on fire when they're on like, when they're on a breakaway, you might as well. More often than not, it's going to be it's going to end up a goal for either of the two. Um, and they play this puck possession game. That they're really the only line and the only two players that can maintain possession on one and the offensive end for extended periods right now for the Blackhawks. But if they're so special and talented, why couldn't why can't Panarin do that with Taves? Kane has cre- has been able to carry a line by himself before. Taves has it, you know, and the Blackhawks have spread out their talent in better respects. I think the depth looks much better if they implement what you did. I think the Blackhawks actually have uh, four lines they can trust if they want you did. And then with Anisimov, 
I'm kind of down on him. I think he's kind of uh, more or less. I mean, this is a very, this is a good, responsible player. But to me, how much does he benefit from playing with Kane, with Kane and Panarin? If Schmaltz is your uh, discounted special boy, ideally within the future, he's your second line center anyway, right? He's playing in the top six within a few years, if that's what you project him as. Um, while Anisimov, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's more, he's playing more cleanup duty or he's just opening things up more than actually being active in creating what that line does. And I need to, I, 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 I want to see them follow through with that suggestion because other than that, like we mentioned, we mentioned it all the time. Otherwise they only have one scoring line. Right. And I think, again, I don't, I don't think that kind of trying that kind of thing, Again, while it may seem a little drastic to to break up that line and do so, like to literally take that line and break it up completely and put all of them with different line mates, it's a little bit of a drastic change, and it probably wouldn't hit right away. But I think if the Hawks can stick with that for five to ten games and see if some chemistry can be generated, see if they can kind of get like three lines scoring or even just two lines scoring, and then see if they can tinker there and kind of get some players hot then I think that that kind of thing can be beneficial. Or even if you want to switch it up a little bit and let Schmaltz play the left wing between Anisimov – or not between, but play the Schmaltz play left wing with Anisimov and Kane and play Panarin with um, Jonathan Tate and Marion Hossa, that kind of move can be beneficial too because, again, you need – you can't be a one-line scoring team. And I don't think that they will – like I don't think that they necessarily will be only one line because I think Jonathan Taze is going to rebound. There's no way, again, he's going to continue to play at this horrid point, this point pace he's on. But they have to make some kind of move, I think, and I think that can be a good move. Um, so, yeah, that's just kind of a thought that I had there. I'm not sure uh, if people react to that. But let's kind of step it. So last week we talked with Mike Fail about um, how the Blackhawks are not necessarily – a team that on paper looks great for the playoffs. Obviously there's going to be some growing pain and they might be able to, to transition into that. But right now there's, a, I think there's a lot to be concerned about with the Hawks with got, like we've talked about Jonathan Tay's not performing. The penalty kills horribly, horribly bad. You know, the, you know, the depth is not there. Um, and the blue line has looked good, but it's still um, obviously that's not, hasn't been enough to get it done at this point. What, when do you think that we can kind of know what we'll expect more from the Hawks? And is there a point at which we need to be more realistic and kind of maybe, I don't want to say get into a panic mode, but think, hey, maybe this team is not what we thought they were. Yeah, no, it's maybe once, if we ever get to that point, it's more just pulling back the reins. Like, hey, they're not as great. This is more of a retooling year. Um, I've always – the entire summer and moving into the season, I've been of the mindset that this would be a year where they would – not that it was a retooling year because they they can't look at that anymore. They Their window with where their core players are, they maybe have two or three years of serious cup contention at best if that's what they want. They can't afford to have any of more of those kinds of um, down years or at least down years for them where they're losing in the first round, missing the playoffs, whatever – not capturing the cup. Um, and, and, and to get to my original point, I look I look at it where this first month, a lot of growing pains, probably up till Thanksgiving, a lot of growing pains. And if I'm not seeing, if Taves isn't having a market correction, if their penalty kill is still 
just atrocious in every facet. Um, they still only have one line. Then that's when I think we can pull back the reins. But it, it but we, but typically around because typically around that point they start putting together a nice seven or eight game winning streak where they're getting sixteen to eighteen points, whatever. Um, that's when I will reserve my judgment more seriously. Now, especially with how the World Cup of Hockey played into things, I think there's a lot of um, – and this isn't making excuses for them. I think this is kind of an extended preseason by respective measures, but that excuse will run out eventually too. Um, so I have a five- or six-week timer where I want to see gradual improvement. And, and, and that's how I always was. This isn't me overreacting. This isn't me being biased. This is how I've seen the 2016 Blackhawks. I've envisioned them for a, for a while now. Yeah, I think that you bring up the um, – it's, it's interesting you bring up the World Cup because I, I was asked before the World Cup started if the World Cup created any kind of worry should, – should create any kind of worry for the Hawks fans about a slow start. And I said, if anything, I would be more concerned about a hot start that is unsustainable. But instead, what we have because because you're gonna have like, you're gonna have these players like Jonathan Tays, like Patrick Kane, like Marion Hosa, who before they before they even play preseason games are playing regular season paced, maybe even playoff paced, and like NHL level games against elite talent. And obviously, like Patrick Kane only got to play I think it was three games because Team USA sucked ass. Um, Jonathan Tays went on to win the gold medal, and so did Corey Crawford, even though he didn't play a ton. Um, but, like, the Hawks had a lot of players at the World Cup that played, a, like, a lot of, like, NHL regular season hockey right away. So, you – I think the concern was a little bit more, like, these guys are going to be so ready that they're going to get off to a hot start that might not be sustainable. Instead, we have a very slow start. And so, I don't know – again, like you said, I, I'm not ready yet to hit the panic button, but it's still a uh, – and they're showing seams, and that's. But I'm not surprised by these seams. You they're know, only su- they like I said earlier. They haven't played a great game yet. They've played great. They played periods of great games. They've played great, you know, parts of games. They were great against the Flyers for you know 35 minutes, and then they decided they didn't want to be great against the Flyers anymore and gave up a four goal lead, and they still won that game, but. They have not played a good, a really good game for 60 minutes yet. And so I think if that kind, of, that kind of thing continues for another three to four weeks where they're just kind of getting by and they're losing to teams like Columbus and having to beat teams like Toronto in a shootout, then I think that at a certain point it becomes a more realistic thing of maybe this team should be looking to sell at the deadline and see what they can get for the players they have. They will never that, sell. As opposed to trying to buy <laughs> and, I, and I don't think I think you're right that they won't do that but I think that they that's kind of what they are they might have to realistically do because I don't I, even if they hit a stride I don't see them being a cup contender this year even if a lot of these things turn around I don't see them winning the Stanley Cup I, they would have they would have to make a major addition at the trade deadline to become a cup contender to, to sell I mean what do they have to sell they can't sell like I said Adam like they they are whether they are a cup contender or not, they're playing for a cup. Like you know what that you, you know what I'm trying to say. They're playing for a cup. They have nothing to sell. This team has no reinforcements. They, the assets they have 
aren't necessarily proven enough to get anything back to where they can retool enough for next year. Um, I, wonder, and also, I wonder, though, like, could can you sell Brian Campbell? Can you sell? He's on a two. He's on a two-year deal. He's on he has a, a one-year one deal. One-year deal. I mean, one are you going to sell? He's on a one-year you... deal. Can you sell that to a team that needs defense? Can you sell Andrew Desjardins to a team that needs defense? Can you sell Dennis Rasmussen? To, or sorry, not defense. Can you sell Andrew Desjardins to a team that needs forward depth? Can you sell Dennis Rasmussen to a team that needs forward depth? Like, there's. I think that there are pieces that they could move and kind of recoup some assets, even if it's just mid-level draft picks and kind of get themselves in a good spot for next year, only if they're not in a position, like, again, I don't think they're going to win the Stanley Cup this year. So I'm not saying, like, they should sell regardless. But if they're in sixth place in the Central in January, I don't think that they should be giving up assets in an effort to finish fourth and make the playoffs. (laughs) Yeah. um... Unless, again, unless you're getting, like, a significant kind of player – that really makes a difference, but you cannot make an Andrew. You cannot make another Andrew Ladd trade this year because no, they, they absolutely can't. No, I mean that 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 already hampers this team. That kind of was what sets back this team. Um, but I, again, I will respectfully disagree. While I don't see a cup right now, again, uh, even if they hit if they hit their stride, they hit their stride. Like a lot of the te- better cup teams, like even. Say Pittsburgh last year, they struck. I mean, they had to go through a radical system change where they hired Mike Sullivan, um, and then Sidney Crosby finally found his natural generational best player in the game uh, skill set. Returned to him. Um, again, I I see this team. If they are a cup contender, then they will pick it up. You you see everyone's favorite Nashville. Nashville doesn't look fantastic either. Nashville's actually play. Uh, Nashville's actually behind the Blackhawks in the standings right now and by virtue only of having played less games, but they're two and three, and they don't look fantastic either. They lost to Detroit the other night. Um, there are a lot of teams right now that, uh, again, like I said earlier, it's an extended preseason, uh, kind of need to knock off the rust, kind of need to knock off a little bit of uh, the lead on their legs and the, and the weights on their legs weighing them down, and and see where it goes for them. I'm not writing them off. I agree with you. I don't see a cup right now, but I am reserving judgment for four or five weeks. Yeah, I'm taking that stance. I think it's a little too, again, it's too early to make any definitive statements, but I do think that if you're worried about this team at this time, I don't think that that is a bad place to be at. No, you're warranted. You're warranted. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's, Let's transition out of this. You had this wonderful idea that, and when I say wonderful, I, think that it's kind of weird <laughs> but you want to do it so i'm gonna let you do it you want to draft halloween movies which i don't even know like how do you like what are we gonna do five rounds and we just get to pick halloween movies yeah le- le- okay so the first tier um you can pick literally like okay so just- are we just talking like horror movies like oh it's a scary movie that qualifies or is it like a movie about halloween because there's a movie about no, no, no. halloween i can only think of like three or four movies no no no, no. we're talking like horror movies because there it's a very limited uh subject matter if you just go halloween um so yeah so you could pick anything you want let's do four rounds pick anything you want and um by virtue of me to thinking of it i will have first pick what (laughs) Is is this a snake draft 
This is a snake draft, yes. Okay. Uh, I will go first. Okay, so when we, and we make our pick, we talk about why it's awesome. Um, we talk about why it's badass and why the other person should be really jealous. I mean, I don't know. I, I just, just brace all Yes, I know. The Shining, Jack Nicholson, my first pick. I think it's one of the greatest movies ever. Uh, tells an amazing story of a guy gone crazy. Um, the resort, a haunted resort, sort of a possessed resort, uh, taking his spirit and. Um, Really turning him against his family. A lot of classic moments. Red Rom, uh, hallways full of blood. Uh, Those the two creepy sisters in the hallway. Uh, Really, Jack chasing his family around the house in the climax. When he gets lost in the maze. Well, not Jack. I I forget what his character was in there. Last last time I watched it was five years ago. But it's really uh, a pinnacle film to me. Stanley Kubrick. That is who directed it, correct? Stanley Kubrick. I don't know. I haven't actually seen The Shining, to be honest with you. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Stanley Kubrick, crazy guy. Also did Full Metal Jacket. Also did 2001 A Space Odyssey. Kind of fits in line with just in general his insanity. And to me, it's the perfect horror movie. Okay. Um, You can just Google it too, man. Second overall pick. Uh, I take Insidious, which I think is a. Oh my god! Uh, oh my god! If you have, have you seen Insidious? I've seen Insidious. You're taking like that's like taking Achilles Smith, or that's like taking. I don't Eric know who Johnson. the hell that is. Okay, fine. That's like okay. taking Eric. Insidious Johnson is a great movie. I've never heard a <laughs> single person that saw it did not think it was a good movie. It's it's suspenseful. It's a good movie. It's, it's like a ex- mid round pick. It's okay, extremely suspe- suspenseful. It's honestly, it's one of my favorite movies. Very suspenseful movie. Um, great story. It act, like my main issue with many horror stories is that it doesn't. They don't make sense. They just kind of happen. And I think Insidious is like it's a a plausible um, kind of story. Um, getting a little more into like the because like you know the demon possession kind of side of it. Getting a little more into like the the spiritual side of it, from what I like, it I went to a Christian school. I'm pretty open about my faith with people. From what I know about demon possession, it's extremely accurate to how demon possession can happen. Um, with in terms of kind of like the stalking starting and then like they kind of close in on their target before actually getting the target, like that. So it was it was just super creepy to think about that. Um, and I think the, the story's great. There's a lot of suspense. It's like scary at parts, but like, it's not, it's not so scary that you're like, let's all turn this movie off. Like it's scary in like a really good way that makes you want to keep watching. Um, and so I think that's a good one. Um, and let's not do a snake draft because I don't have a, a sec, uh, a next pick. So give me a second to think about a pick. Okay, go ahead and do that. Um, I will take, uh, Silence of the Lambs, another one of my favorite movies. Uh, I watched it as a kid, regrettably, the first time. Dude, I think that's I- the movie I think I was trying to think of right now, where I, like, that's the one where Hannibal Lecter cuts off the guy's face and wears it as a mask, right? Uh, he does that in a lot of movies, but yeah, but I think which- that's, that's his original, it's, it was his original debut, the, the, the debut of Hannibal Lecter, like the character. Yeah, 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 that's the one I was trying to think of where I couldn't remember the name of the movie, so damn it. Yeah, I regrettably watched it the first time where I was 10 or 12, and I just remember the first scene that where all the cops are walking in, where they're walking into all the skinned human carcasses and, and such, and it, it's just, 
I mean, you look at how the movie is and how the atmosphere is played off and the creepiness of the characters. I mean, it had the best actor, Anthony Hopkins, who is, to me, one of the greatest villains ever in film history. And how he plays this cat and mouse game with Jodie Foster's character, who also won Best Actress for an Oscar. And the whole dynamic just builds this tension throughout and how they're trying to find Buffalo Bill and the, the other serial killer using Anthony Hopkins' hand Hannibal Lecter. And, uh, I mean, it's just beautifully done. Like, even the final scene for spoilers, I mean, this is a 30, almost a 30-year-old movie. So for spoilers, at the end, just the humor and the levity where, the, where Anthony Hopkins is sitting alone um, in the Caribbean uh, looking for the detective that was hunting him earlier, and he's talking to Clarice, Jodie Foster's character, about how he's going to have a nice meal for those who don't know Hannibal, like there's a cannibal and he's looking right at the detective. Like but those kinds of little touches are throughout the entire movie and building tension or levity. I mean, creepy and perfect all in one. Okay. Um, I'm trying to do some, some thought here. Cause yeah, I don't know. I haven't used, again, you sprung this on me and I, I don't, I'm not a big no, horror no, movie person I'm to be doing- honest with you. I'm doing it off off the top of my off more or less on top of my head too. I'm just thinking of, of good movies that I like, so I mean it's fine. I'm not a big horror movie person. Not that I'm like a scaredy cat or anything, but I just don't like I'm not super into them. But mm-hmm. I think uh, my num- my second pick. I don't know if you've ever heard of this movie. I don't know how many people have seen it. It's on Netflix, so you should watch it. It's called The Babadook. Um, and I've it, seen The Babadook. It's pretty good. It, it's a good movie. It's I I don't I think it's like an indie film. Um, but it's just like, again, it's one of those movies that is not overly scary, um, has like the scary moments, suspenseful moments, but like the story is interesting. And that's kind of what I look for more in movies. It's like, can you hook me with a story? And so I think that that's a really fun movie. Um, it's very interesting again, like just kind of like what happens and how, um, this, I don't want to ruin it because I want people to go watch it on Netflix because it's good, but the, the transformation, of the way that they kind of view the Babadook and how they approach trying to um, defeat it is interesting. And so I think it's, yeah. um, Actually, what's kind of funny, me and my friends were watching it and I don't know, I honestly, I don't know the the name of this song for real, but we we kept going, the Babadook, do, 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 the Babadook, do, 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 do. So whatever song that one is, I don't know what it's, what it's from, but I think people will recognize that tune. Obviously Robert doesn't know it because he's a loser. Go ahead, Robert. Your third pick. Uh, I, I will stick to very cliche choice here. Uh, third is Halloween, creating the most invincible movie character ever, Michael Myers. No matter what you do to him, he seemingly can't die. He seemingly can't disappear. I think what they explain is that he's just like possessed by some kind of malevolent force where no matter what happens, like just he somehow seems to rise. I mean, they, they get him with like, shotgun blasts they burn him alive and then every subsequent sequel he comes back he's just this never-ending force of destruction and evil uh and even how they frame how he became he becomes a serial killer like like this child that murders animals and such like it's not as necessarily scary it's just more it's more about like it's more of this feeling of inevitability like what if it's a movie that's very good the first time you watch it but somehow on all your subsequent viewings around this time of year, like you're still like, 
holy shit, how is he still getting back up? Like, like, because like, you, you're still so enveloped in the tension in the atmosphere. Like, how is he? How is he still like coming after them? Like, after all, he's been through all this shit. Uh, it, it's uh, it's exhausting. So that's my okay. third pick. Sure, my third pick is Mirrors, um, starring Kiefer Sutherland. Um, if I don't know how many people have seen the movie, uh, have you seen that Mirrors? I've not seen Mirrors. I've okay. never even heard of it. You should watch it it's very fascinating um basically the premise is that Kiefer sutherland is a police officer i think right i think he's a, yeah pretty sure he's a police officer and he's been in like investigating deaths um that they just have no explanation for and basically these like mirrors are possessed um and they get they kind of get into why that is the case throughout the movie um, but these mirrors are possessed and have been killing people. Um, and it's, 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 again, it's a, it's another movie with the story's great. The way it develops is great. Kiefer Sutherland is a, a good actor, not necessarily huge in the movie world, but he's good in this role. Um, and I really like the story. It's, it's hard because I don't want to give away like what happens. And so it's like, I've never, literally never even heard of it. You know, you should, you should watch it. It's good. It's, it's, I mean, it it doesn't have the best reviews. Um, it just it has a fourteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes, but I really liked it. So that's just I'm just again I'm not a big horror movie person, so I'm not really looking for good movies per se. But I don't I don't think most horror movies get good reviews on Rotten Tomatoes anyway. Uh, well, the most recent successful one, which will be my final fourth pick and be the anchor of my team, uh, my championship team that is The Conjuring. I think is one of the best horror movies ever. Uh, definitely the best modern era horror movie. Fantastically done with relatively unknown cast. Um, the tension build up. I remember watching it the first time with my friends, like just in college. Like we didn't see it in theaters. We got it off, I believe, off at a red box. And it pleasantly surprised us because horror movies just don't, they're not, and it's not to sound like an old man or anything because we're not, but they're just not made the same way anymore and had a very nice modern take. And I, I believe like the stories from the, the same, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Amityville horror, but it's the same investigators that worked on here. And then it's the same investigators that worked on in the sequels, the country country Two. Uh, just the perfect movie to me. Well, perfect horror movie to me. That is. Okay. And the final pick of the draft and the anchor of my team is season one of American Horror Story. Which I don't know if that's cheating because it's not really a movie. It's 12. I mean, that's technically it, cheating. It's that's like 12 you're episodes. Gonna, you're you're going to have to talk to the commissioner about circumventing the salary cap, but go it's on. okay. I'll, I'll pay the cap recapture when they retire. Um, but yeah, the American Horror Story is a great show. Um, I, well, I should say from what I've heard, I'm actually not super season into one, it. Right? Yeah, season, but season one was phenomenal. I really loved it. Um, I've heard, like, I think season one's the only one I've actually watched, but I really, really liked it, and I've heard it just gets better if you watch it. Um, I, like, again, I'm not a huge horror movie person. I don't really know a lot of horror movie fans. So, it, and that's, like, it's not necessarily, I feel like it's a show that you don't watch alone. I don't know. Like, I feel like it's, like, a show that you watch so that you can talk about it with people. And I, I don't like to watch horror movies alone because I do, like, Obviously, it's a little easier to be scared when you're with people um, and can kind of laugh about being scared together. So um, I have not been into the the I have not really watched American Horror Story, but season one was phenomenal. I really liked it, and so I draft that. Uh, okay, well, 
that just about concludes this draft. I just won the Super Bowl for sure, though. I just started a dynasty. No. I think we can continue. Your team actually is much better than mine, but also it's because you prepared for this draft. I did not prepare. I'm you, I, you attended the combine. You I, yes, the I did. The, I did the you, necessary scouting, and I, I I looked at film. I've broken everything down. All you're the guy who buys the fantasy football preview magazine oh, wow. in May, and I just checked. And I just checked out the rankings. You're not me for I made being my prepared decisions. for being over prepared for this being has been my... episode three of season two <laughs> of the Second City Hockey Ice Cold Podcast. My name is Adam Hess. You can follow me on Twitter at underscore Adam Hess. That's Robert Zeglinski. Follow him on Twitter at Robert Z E G Linsky. Follow our work on Second City Hockey dot com. Follow Second City Hockey on Twitter at two N D City Hockey, and uh, follow the podcast. At Ice Cold Podcast. Uh, if you don't do these things, you're fired. All right, Robert, off. do you have any closing uh, closing remarks? I won. That's all we have to. That's all we have to disagree on. I, I won. Okay. Good job, Robert. <laughs> for Robert Zaglinski, I'm Adam Hess signing off. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay classy.